So I'll begin with the question, what um, keeps you healthy and happy for all of life? What keeps you healthy and happy for all of life? If you were to invest in your future today, invest in your future best self. There's this journal called the Best Self Journal. Have you seen this? If you invest in your future best self, where would, that, where would you put your time and your energy today? A lot of us began spending time thinking about that question on, on or around January 1st, and now it's January 21st, uh, historically the worst weather day of the year, and we have only a vague recollection of what that commitment was on January 1st, like what we set out to do, to become, to be in 2018. Some of us completely forgot, did I set a New Year's resolution? There was actually a recent survey of millennials asking what their most important life goals were. Do you know this study? 80, nearly 80% of millennials said in this study that a major life goal for them was to get rich. And then another 50% of those same millennials said that another major life goal is to become famous. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. That's kind of the millennial generation. I'm I'm not throwing any of you millennials in there, but what about you? Um, To become rich, to become famous, what's your most important life goal today? January 21st, 2018. Is it to lose weight is it to get in shape? Is it to save for the future? Is it to rise up in your career? Is it to get, gain confidence as you raise children? Is it intimacy with your spouse? Is it faith? What's the most important thing in your life today? See, we're constantly reminded in a variety of ways every day that we, of what we lack. And so we pursue those things. We're told that we need the next great experience. We're told that we need to taste what everybody else is tasting. You know, we need to go to that new restaurant on Capitol Hill to drive what they're driving, the Tesla, right? <laughs> I wish, (laughs) to have the device in your purse or your pocket that's going to unlock true meaning, right? To put into place the the proverbial missing piece of the puzzle in your life. We're all told this every day in a variety of different ways. And we're given this impression that these things are the things we need to go after in order to have the good life, to experience the good life. However, here's the reality. Pictures of entire lives, good lives, and of the daily choices that go into those lives— and, and how those choices impact our well-being over a long period of time are almost impossible to get. We can hardly remember what we set out to do on January 1st, let alone last January and the January before that. We've, we forget vast amounts of things that happen to us. Our experiences, not, alone, not, not least uh, information, both short-term and long-term. So here's a question. What if we could remember? What if we could get a picture of a life well-lived as, the, as it unfolded through time? What if we could study people from the time they were young to the time they were old, to see what contributes to healthy, happy, joyful life, and then model ourselves after that. Well, it's been done. Uh, the Harvard Study of Adult Development, also known as the, um, the Grant Study, maybe you've heard of this. It's the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. 75 years it's been going on. Tracked the lives of 724-plus men, because Harvard used to be a men's-only college, so when this started in like 1938, just picked men, but they studied from men from all walks of life, who when they entered the study were just teenagers, and today many of them, well, all of them are older. They've grown up. They've become factory workers, lawyers, doctors, bricklayers, even one president of the United States. I won't name names. Some develop alcoholism, others schizophrenia. Some climbed the social ladder from the, the bottom to the top. Others went the other direction. But guess what? Guess what the leaders of this study have observed over the last 75 years about the keys to happiness, wholeness, and success. And health, guess what? It's not their wealth or fame 
to all the millennials that, that, that contributed to that year after year after year. It's not their job or their lack thereof. It's not the size of their home or their portfolio or their college degree that's hanging on their wall. The clearest, listen to this, the clearest uncategorical message over the last 75 years is this. Good relationships are the key to the good life. That's it. Good relationships equal good life. So it's not going to be your middle-aged cholesterol level, friends, that contributes to wellness. It's not the size of your 401k or how, how, that says how healthy or happy you're going to be when you're old. It's not the toys you acquire today, iPhone 10 or whatever, <laughs> that's going to, where you accumulate those things, that's going to, where you're privileged to travel or live or eat. It's not paleo, vegan, or gluten-free. None of that matters. None of it. I mean, some of it in the short term probably makes a difference. But our long-term wholeness, happiness, and longevity will be determined today by how deep, satisfied, uh, committed we are to relationship. The key to a good life is good relationship. That's it. So what does this mean? Like, it's a squishy statement to make. Good life, good relationship. It sounds great. Um, when you think about it, what does it really, what goes into a good relationship? There's, and there's a lot that goes in. Um, and I'm not going to presume to cover all the territory of what goes in today. Good communication goes into good relationship. Spending time together goes into good relationship. There's a lot that goes into good relationship that I can't cover today. But it's interesting today, as we look at, like I said, Paul's probably his most well-known chapter of his, certainly his most encouraging letter, Philippians, Philippians 2, with this vivid portrait laid out before us of what it looks like to cultivate good, I'll just say good gospel-centered relationships, okay? And so what we're going to set out to do today is just explore a couple of things, uh, building blocks for these relationships. We're going to look at the keys to them, a couple of keys, and then actually I'm going to skip the barriers because <laughs> I'm going to outline, I have in your outline, it says keys, barriers, and then the, what it takes, the take. We're going to, the barriers are kind of embedded as I, as I prepare this in the keys. So just think of two points, the keys, a couple things there, and then kind of maybe one take home, okay? So let's look at the keys first. Um, and you can be open to Philippians 2, we're just going to be there. Uh, verses, verses 1 to 11, okay? Uh, there's so much in Philippians, like we would need more time to really adequately cover all the territory. So I felt like going deeper into these 11 verses today would mean more for us than in a shallow sense in the 29 or 30 verses that are there. So uh, another time for the last half. So the first key, Paul lends us in a kind of series of exhortations in the first couple verses. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Another translation I found says this, be of one mind or be of the same mind, have the same love, live in deep harmony. Okay? Same mind, same love, deep harmony. And the summary statement of this, the first key, just so you can write this down, strive for unity. Unity is the first key. Okay? Now I want to make an observation and point out a problem with this word unity. First the observation, real quick. The fact that Paul's joy is not yet complete is an indication that these elements of unity same-mindedness, same love, deep harmony, are lacking in the church in Philippi, okay? In other words, they don't, they're a good church, probably Paul's like poster child church. They don't have the same mind. They don't have the same love. They're not united in spirit. They're not intent on one purpose. Are they saved? Yes. Like, are they growing in many ways, like spiritually? Yes. Are they, is their worship, as Paul would say, decent and in good order, doctrinally sound? Yes. You know, they're not worshiping idols as the Corinthians were. They're in solidarity with Paul. There's generosity. They're even sacrificing 
to help Paul further the mission and the message of Christ. And yet, Paul says, my joy is incomplete. Like you're a great church, poster child church, and yet I'm not filled with joy to completeness yet. Uh, And I think that's a a good observation for us because none of us, as we come here today, just in case you didn't wake up knowing this, we're all incomplete. (laughs) None of us are complete. You're not there yet. Um, Which leads to the presenting problem in Philippi as well as for us, which is to say that in spite of our shared love for Christ and our shared belief in Christ and our shared life together, we love being together, we're not unified. We're not. That's, we have a problem with unity. <laughs> in other words, we hear unity, here's what we think. Uh, we think like open-mindedness, you know, or um, we think like that bumper sticker coexists, like th- it's this religious playground of pluralism, you know, like all the kids on the playground just getting along, you know, you have all the religious symbols, they're just playing together nicely. We think that's what it means to be in unity. And that, I'll just say that's not unity, at least as the Bible understands unity, not at all. So remember, Uh, In John 17, Jesus' final prayer, he prays that his disciples would what? Be one, even as what? He and the Father are one. So what's that about? It's super significant. Unity, what Jesus is pointing to there, is, is fundamentally relational. It's also organic. Relationships are organic things. They're not things you can buy off the shelf. Okay, they're organic. And as many of you know, if you garden and you have organic gardens, what's one of the keys to a good organic garden? Variety. Difference. Right? Not sameness. And difference, there it is. Difference, not sameness, is the key to unity. Difference. Uh, in other words, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, Jesus prays that the disciples and the church today would be one just like they're one, Father, Son, Spirit, fundamentally different from each other. Fundamentally. Uh, et- but eternally united, though they're eternally unique. Does that make sense? They're, all, they're always one, eternally, but always different. And this is so key for us in understanding biblical, robust, biblical unity, okay? Remember what Paul says elsewhere about unity, and I think it's in Corinthians. He says that the church, we as members of the church, are one body with what? many parts. He uses this body analogy. And so as a body, apply that principle to this idea of difference. Take my body. I love my body. Um, <clears throat> there's not a single aspect of my body that is exactly the same. So my hands, for example. Somebody was just asking about my, how my wrist is. I broke my hand. And so this hand, my left hand, my dominant hand is like a mangled mess. There's a messed up finger. I've broken it in all these places. And this one is this like beautiful image. For, I'm just waiting for the call from Vogue magazine, like, for a hand modeling career. Like, my eyes, they're not parallel, right? My ears are the same. My feet, check this out. I don't even know which one it is, but one foot is literally a half inch shorter than the other foot. So, I, I mean, I can go, I can't go down to size 12, so I wear a size 13, but I'd, I'm embarrassed to get 13s. I'd rather have 12s, so sometimes I jam my feet into 12s, and one of my feet goes, you know, it's too long for the shoe. And still, I'm one body, it would be really silly, listen to Paul, to, for my left foot to say to my right foot, would you just grow? Just grow a half inch so we could just be the same? No. Paul says you're one body, you're different, and yet you're, you're still one. Okay? Apply that to this room. Compare any two bodies in this room, any two bodies, even the twins. 
there are identical twins, but any two lives, there is so much variation and so much uniqueness. Ages, stages, races, ethnicities, people in this room who are very sick, people in this room who are well, all sorts of giftings, an amazing diversity of weakness. <laughs> and there's a profound difference in this room. Profound difference. And we all in our own way contribute to the story that God's writing in this body, unified in our uniqueness. Is this making sense to you? Which is an important word for today. Really important word for today. Just to back the lens out. I read this article on January 1st this year, that year we all made our resolutions, by the columnist and the New York Times columnist David Brooks. In this article, it's really short. If you, it's called um, The Retreat to Tribalism, if you want to find it on New York Times. Great article. And he's exploring the ramifications of identity politics and how that's affecting American society today. This sort of us versus them mindset that's just rampant in all of our discourse today. All of it. Political discourse, discourse in the media, all over the place. And in the article, he explores the work of uh, NYU's Jonathan Haidt, who I'd never heard of before, but he's a professor of social psychology and ethical leadership. Like, that's cool. <laughs> so, professor of social psychology and ethical leadership. I'm just like, that's the guy I want to read. So I, I read some of his stuff, and here's what Haidt said. Listen to this. A funny thing happens when you take young human beings. He's a college professor. So young human beings, but apply this to your life, whose minds evolved for tribal warfare and us-them thinking, and you fill those minds with full of binary dimensions, okay? The zeros and ones. You tell them that one side in each binary is good and the other is bad, and you turn on, listen to this, their ancient tribal circuits preparing them for battle. And here's, here's the rest of the quote. Many students, or we just say, we just say 40-somethings, 30-somethings, apply that to our context, and we find it thrilling. It floods us with a sense of meaning and purpose. And yet the problem is that this tribal common enemy thinking ultimately tears a a diverse nation like ours in shreds. We are a diverse body of people, and when we have that kind of us versus them thinking, we are torn to pieces. I mean, do you see how insidious in our culture this us-them out-group, in-group thinking is. And you see, God determined that this would not be our story. That, the, that God would not only have a church, but not only a nation, but a whole creation unified in uniqueness, filled with gatherings of people like ours, men and women, equally created, okay? Uh, black, white, Asian, Latino, equally created, yet very unique and different. Uh, gay and straight, people with degrees, people without degrees. Very young, very wise, I didn't notice I didn't say old. (laughs) People who tend to be legalistic, people who tend to take too many liberties, Me Too victims, redeemed perpetrators, people with immense debt and very little margin to spare, people with more money than they know what to do with. And then the list goes on and on. Profound difference, and yet the key is that in our difference, we're called by God to follow Christ and then reflect God's character, unity, uniqueness to the world, united, one body, okay? And Christ is our head. So in order to demonstrate that to the world, the best we can do is to say, God is eternally one, we are one, and yet discover our different stories. Look around the room. Have you, I mean, have you looked around the room before and go, man, I, I, they're not exactly the same as I am. I should, I should dive into that story. I, I, maybe I shouldn't gravitate during the Greek time toward the, the person who looks just like me. Maybe they have the cool coffee cup just like I do, or they're wearing the cool Patagonia flannel just like I am. Maybe I should gravitate toward that person that looks very different than I do. Maybe their story has something for me so I can understand the body of Christ better and work in union with God better. One body. One body. 
okay? And we've been brought to this eternal fellowship of love, intimacy, and uniqueness with Father, Son, and Spirit so we can participate in God's work that's been going on from the beginning of time. So that's the first key to good relationship is, is that sort of unity and uniqueness. Are you with me? Here's the second key. And it's articulated in verse 3 and then verse 4 of Philippians 2 where Paul says, in humility, there's the end of the verse, value others above yourselves, <clears throat> looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So here's the second key. First key is unity. Second key sounds just like it. Humility. Unity, humility. Uh, now, humility is a really interesting word. It's simple. I mean, the Greek means what we mean in English. It's gentleness, modesty, deference. That's kind of humility. But it's interesting because in the Greek New Testament, uh, this word, whenever it's used in any other Greek ancient writings, is always... And always derogatory, not in the New Testament, but in, if you look around at all the writings that surround the Greek New Testament at the time, uh, all of them in the Greco-Roman society of Jesus' day, to be deferential, to be gentle, to be meek and modest was actually the attitude of a slave. And therefore, you know, in that old society, they, they practiced slavery. And they valued strength. They practiced slavery they value strength. They believe that social stability was based on fear. So it's a fear-based culture. So people had to respect you, and the way you got them to respect you was to make them fear you. And if you're treated with respect, then the society's going to hold together. And so the more they fear you, the better. And the only way to command respect and fear is, is, is to, to kind of be the, the big man, you know? And so gentleness, deference, and modesty, well, that's not going to work. Because that, that's, that, there's no way people are going to respect me. So that's the stuff for slaves. Because they need to respect their superiors. Does this make sense to you? And thus, if you go back and look at the Greeks, Aristotle, Plato, all the philosophers of the time, and you look at all their emphasis on virtue, they were a very virtuous society. Not once did they ever mention humility as a virtue. Not a single time. Can't find it. And yet, look at the New Testament. All over the place. Over 270 times in the Greek New Testament... This word, in a variety of different translations, is used. Jesus talks about it. Remember this in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. There's a blessing, and that's the word. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. Oh, oh, and then Matthew chapter 11. Remember when Jesus says this? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And then what does he say? Remember this? Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And I, for I am what? I'm gentle and humble in heart. Jesus is humble. And that's part of his character. It's who he is. I mean, this Bible, the Bible we have in front of us, almost always, I, I'd say always, looks at this word positively, not negatively. And do you realize what a revolution that is? Not only for the, the Roman Empire in which Jesus was raised and then began his mission, but for the wider world as Christianity began to spread outward. When Christianity comes along, begins to emphasize humility as a virtue. It had been denigrated for generations. And he, it calls it the posture to live in, the character of God. You know, it's something that had been despised before. Now, I hear someone saying, that's great. Thanks for the little history lesson, ancient Near Eastern history lesson, Jack. That's really fascinating. But I mean, how does that apply to my life, right? And specifically to the relationships that I'm I want to develop. I want, to, I want to, that good life you mentioned, Jack, at the beginning. I want to live that life. How does humility factor in there? 
I'm glad you asked that question. Because if, if I ask you, what's the opposite of humility? What, what's the opposite of humility? Pride. We're always, we most of all of us would say pride. And, and guess what? That's not the case. Pride is not the opposite of humility. And I'll tell you why. You see, what Paul says here is nothing short of brilliant. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So humility that drives and develop, develops good gospel-centered relationships is about what? Other focus. Looking at others, okay? Now, the opposite of humility, we think of pride, it's actually self-focus, okay? So think with me for a minute. When you think of proud people, we almost always think of arrogant people, you know, braggarts. That's a form of pride. We think of people who are self-promoting, <laughs> you know, always putting that next selfie up on Instagram or Facebook, whatever, you know, hashtagging their own name. I don't know. And, but that's, that's a form of pride, okay? Uh, but ultimately, pride that, that is really fueled by deep insecurity, if you know anything about pride, which is ultimately the need for honor and recognition and approval. Now, here's the key, and here's the connection to humility and why they're not opposites. The need for honor, recognition, and approval, which is the fuel for pride, can also be manifested in like an inferiority complex, just as much as a superiority complex. In other words, if you're always down on yourself, you know, you're always kicking yourself to the curb, beating yourself up, you're afraid of compliments, you know, uh, you're afraid of any kind of attention, you know, and I, I've dealt with this, so I'm just putting myself in the you, it's because you're just as painfully self-aware and, and you're just as absorbed in thinking about yourself as the person who's the opposite, the prideful person. You're looking at yourself and you're wondering, listen, how am I coming across to you? Like, I'm, I think of this almost every Sunday. How am I coming across? Are my vo- is my voice clear? Do I look good? Is anything sticking out that shouldn't be sticking out? Am I liked? Am I loved? We ask those questions. You're just as self-absorbed. I'll just tell you this. You're just as self-absorbed as the person with that superiority complex because you're thinking about yourself. Humility is not the opposite of pride. The opposite of humility is self-focus. And that's why Paul says the key to humility, the key to humility in relationship is other focus. Tim Keller calls it this, blessed self-forgetfulness. Blessed self-forgetfulness. Just forgetting that you exist. Uh, Which brings us full circle back to the text and what's so brilliant about it. I want you in your relationships to be, I want them to be infused with humility. And then Paul describes how that might look. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. That's humility. He didn't say hate yourself. Put yourself down. Self-deprecate. Like give a humble brag once in a while. He also didn't say don't have any interests. Like, just be a doormat. Don't have goals, don't have needs. Just be kind of complacent and compliant. Okay? He didn't say that. Paul said, look what he says. Be, genuine humility is discovered and revealed through other focus, looking at others, looking at their interests. As C.S. Lewis says somewhere, it's, it's not thinking less of yourself or thinking more of yourself. It's what? Thinking of yourself less. That's the key. And this is such an important word in our culture today, just like with unity, where the prevailing theme, I already kind of tipped my hand at this, is self-focus. Like, the fact that we have this thing called a selfie today, uh, it just reveals the culture we're swimming in. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I brought this quote because I read this occasionally in, in sermons, but I, it was, it's so good. It's by Eugene Peterson in this little book called Eat This Book. 
Here's what he says. He says, uh, we live in an age in which all of us have been trained from the cradle to choose for ourselves what's best for us. And by the time we can hold a spoon, we're beginning to choose between a half dozen cereals for breakfast, ranging from Cheerios to cornflakes to whatever. Our tastes, our inclinations, and our appetites are consulted endlessly. We're soon deciding what clothes we'll wear, what style we'll have our hair cut, the options proliferate, what TV channels we'll view, view, what courses we're going to take in school, what college we'll attend, what courses we'll sign up for, what model and make of car we'll drive, what church we'll join. We church shop. <laughs> we learn early with, a multiple, with multiple conversations as we grow older that we have a say in the formation of our lives with certain bounds, a decisive say. And then he says this, if the culture does a thorough job on us and it turns out to be mighty effective, we enter adulthood with the working assumption that whatever we need, whatever we want, and whatever we feel forms the divine control center of our lives. The new holy trinity of the 21st century, Eugene Peterson says, is the trinity of my needs, my wants, my feelings. Wow. <laughs> we are so self-focused. And, and friends, the Bible confronts that culture of me, mine, my, and says, if you want deep gospel-centered relationships, you must stop looking in the mirror so much. Like shatter the mirror in your house, literally, maybe, but shatter the mirror of your heart. And stop focusing on yourself. Stop thinking of your holy needs, your holy wants, and start looking at the other. There are others all around you right now. Unique, different. Look at the stranger on the bus tomorrow, if you take the bus, and ask yourself this question. I mean, just look at them. They might freak out as you're looking at them, but what are their deepest needs? What are their longings? Do they have community like I had yesterday? Is God in their life? Ask yourself some questions about them. You know, we saw a guy outside our house yesterday, and true confession, I didn't go out to talk to him because I was nervous about it. It was cold yesterday, remember this? Raining in the afternoon. Um, and this poor guy is in a t-shirt and jeans, and he's kind of walking around stiff. And it was clear, I told Elizabeth, we're in the kitchen kind of just making dinner. It was clear he didn't know where he was. He was lost. He was aimless. Did I go out and talk to him? No. I was a little nervous about doing that. Didn't take that step. But I was convicted in saying, what, who is this guy? Why is he in our neighborhood? Who does he belong to? Where is he going? Have you ever asked that of a person in your midst that you don't know? Look at your neighbors. They drive into the shelter and the security of their, of their home, their, the, the, the veil of their well-crafted life. It's a veil, friends. And ask, where might the gospel of free grace intersect with their life? And is it me? Is it my family? Is it our presence in their lives? Look at your spouse. This has been convicting for me as well. Not your device in bed, whether that's the device that you're streaming your socials through or device that you're reading on. Look at your spouse. Look at him or her in the eye tonight. I dare you. I dare you. Look at him or her tonight and say... I'm excited about who God's making you to be. I'm excited about who you're becoming. As excited today as I was the day we married, whether that was a year ago or 20 years ago. Look at, I dare you, do it. Look at your own children and say the same thing. I'm excited about you. Focus on others, and in doing so, share God's delight by simply being present, other-focusing, self-forgetting. That's humility. That's all humility is. It's not actually that hard to do. Other focus. And that's the second key. Now, I said I'm going to skip the barriers because I already, I already talked about them. I've already outlined the barrier to union, which is our failure to remember that in spite of our difference, we're on the same team. 
we are on the same team, same mission, same goal. And the barrier to humility is our tendency to just look at ourselves, worry about ourselves, think about ourselves. Those are real barriers, okay? And we have a lot of work to do to overcome them, but we have resources. So that's why I want to jump to this last thing. Kind of this take. How do we develop these kinds of relationships that are infused with humility and unity? How do we overcome those barriers, okay? And the, the, the take, the take home, is really revealed to you, to us, in uh, this Christ hymn. So I'm going to read it again because this is like the meat. I'm not going to be able to spend the whole, I, I'm not spending the whole message on this, but it's like the meat of Philippians 2. And so there's so much I could unpack, but I'm just going to focus on one thing. But let me read it again, verses 5 to 8. Uh, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And allow this to kind of wash over you. So if this helps to close your eyes, well, you're not studying this. This is actually a song meant to be sung, meant to be chanted, meant to be recited. Okay, let this go into your heart. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used or grasped or held on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, becoming made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. We'll pause there, okay? There's so much, like I said, we can unpack I'm going to finish with this one thing. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same, literally it says mind. Some translations say mindset. That's not, it's literally say, have the mind of Christ. Okay, so here's what this means. I mean, how do you develop relationships in such a way that reflect unity and humility? Here's how. Look at somebody else. Like I said, other focus, but not just any other. Paul's saying, go the next step. Be other focused, but look at someone else. Have the same mind as Christ himself. Don't just look to Jesus as a cosmic influencer. Like, look at the example of his life and follow his example. And here's all the examples, right? The mind of Christ is not a moral code. That'll lead to nothing but what's called moralistic, deistic influence. And that's not following Christ. Don't Drill this down, Christ him, as a set of doctrine. Like, look at the big truths revealed here. Uh, incarnation and the atonement and all these things, and then drill those into your life as a set of doctrines to follow. You do that, that's called legalism, okay? You can take legalism, but it'll kill you. Instead, look at Christ. Here's the, here's the take. The take is a person. Here's the take home. It's a person. We're called in our relationships to look to a person, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who's the patron saint at Bethany, um, he has this book called Ethics that he wrote around World War II, and he reflects this so well. He says that ethical living, ethical living is not a matter of developing a list of rules, rights and wrongs, ins and outs, do's and don'ts, but discerning the will of God in each situation and doing that will. And thus, he says, that union with God compels one to act in love in accordance with God's character. And the definition of what that looks like is found in one place. Bonhoeffer says, and it's in the person and work, life and death of Jesus. So that's how we respond and react in situations. We look at how he responded and reacted. 
And then we pursue that. We don't just pursue unity as an end. We pursue Jesus. We don't pursue humility as an end. We pursue Jesus. And the more we pursue Jesus, the more unified we'll be. The more we pursue Jesus, the more humble we'll be. It begins as we pursue Christ. That's your take home. Pursue Christ. So how might that look? Okay? As you go home. Like I said, you have to remember this is not theology or just theology. This, this passage I just read, it's a hymn. It was like thought to be one of the first songs the early church ever sang. Um, that's why it's called the Christ hymn in some of your Bibles. So it's written to be chanted and recited and sung. So right there in verse 6, Paul says, he enters into this song, look to Christ who, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be used or taken advantage of. Rather, he made himself into nothing, taking the very nature of a slave, made himself in human likeness, and found in that likeness, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. See, what Paul is saying is this. In order to have the mind of Christ, you have to have his mind govern your relationships. And if you want him to have, you want to have his mind, you want to have more of him in your relationships, you have to learn to worship him for who he really is as a humble slave. He's he's an exalted king, but first and foremost, he became a humiliated, obedient slave. You have to learn to chant and recite and sing him into your life for who he truly is and what he did. Uh, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to grasp, but he made himself into nothing. The Greek word there for made himself into nothing is this Greek word kenosis, which is thrown around all, the pla- all over places. But literally it just means he emptied himself. Like a, Kenosis means like if you took a glass and you emptied it out and there's a couple drops left, you know, there's always a couple drops. That's kenosis. Get it all out. He emptied himself. Though he's God, he emptied himself. So some people have asked over the generations, theologians especially, so what did he empty himself of? Right? Like, what does it look like to empty myself? Well, notice it doesn't just say, you know, it doesn't say what he emptied himself up. It just says uh, he emptied himself. So some people say, well, he... He, this is like a heresy, but he emptied himself as his, of his deity. He became fully human. He wasn't God. He emptied himself as, of his divinity. But it never says that. It never says he gave up being God. Uh, instead, it says he started doing something. Like I said, he started become, he became a servant. He became, the word there is doulo. He became a slave. He didn't shed his divine nature. He assumed, he's emptying himself. He is, is assuming something, actually. It's kind of counterintuitive, it's filling himself, but he assumed a human nature, became a servant. And there it is. What does it look like to have the mind of Christ? What does it look like to, to have your lives and your relationships infused with Christ? He became a servant. Now, remember what I said earlier about humility as something in Jesus' time to be despised and not desired? Think about it in context of who Jesus became. He emptied himself. He became that which the culture despised. He emptied himself of that which was desirable, that which evokes adoration and honor and respect. He emptied himself of all of his beauty. As Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from people who would hide their faces. We might just say he was grotesque. I know that's kind of a harsh way of putting it. But he came without glory, though he did never stop being God. God revealed his glory in his humility, in his, 
his emptying of himself. And there it is. That's the take-home. The way to develop gospel-centered relationships, to have the mind of Christ, is to empty yourself. Look to others, but then go further. That last drop, the degree that you know and believe that the self-emptying mind of Christ lives within you and governs you and is expressing himself through you as you live in that sort of posture with each other, that you don't, you don't come from scarce, you don't have scarcity, you're filled with Christ, and yet Christ <laughs> is always emptying. It's, it's just this eternal river I can always give because Christ lives in me, and he is always emptying of himself. Maybe the last drop for him, but it's never the last drop because he's, he's always filling, always emptying. To the degree that you're gripped by that reality, singing about that reality, uh, realizing that the, the way up was down for Jesus, if the way up is down in your relationships with each other, uh, the way to be to rich is give away. Just give away. The way to rule is to serve. Ask each other in your homes, how can I serve you? Um, the way to be happy is not to seek your own happiness, but the happiness of others. To seek to serve. The, that's the way of Christ. The most glorious thing of all, the greatest form of glory is just to give your glory away for somebody else. And the key, here's the, here's the key for this as you take this home, is to not attempt to do this under your own power or strength. Paul says somewhere else in 1 Corinthians, I think, you know, here in Philippians he says, have the same mind. It's an exhortation. Have the same mind as Christ. Do you know what he says in 1 Corinthians 2? You have been given, past tense, the mind of Christ. So in one sense, it's grab for this, go for this, strive for it. In the other sense, he says, you no need to strive because it's been given to you. It's a gift. It's a free gift. The mind of Christ is in you. He gave it to you. So, and when you see that, that his mind is filling your mind, his life is filling your life, that his kenosis, his self-emptying love is flowing through you. You'll never run dry. That'll, pardon the, yeah, it'll fill you up. <laughs> it's overflowing. There you go. Out you go. In your relationships. Always able to give. Look to Christ. Uh, I'll finish with this beautiful image because it is about looking to Christ. I want to invite worship team forward. Um, this is from C.S. Lewis's book on miracles, but he talks about this idea. And again, you have been given the mind of Christ, the self-emptying love of Christ. The way up is down. Listen to this sort of meditation on that by C.S. Lewis, and then we'll respond by worshiping together. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space down into humanity, down further still, down, down, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature that he created. But he goes down to come up again, and he brings the whole ruined world up with him. One may think of a diver, first reducing him or herself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down, 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 through green, and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color, back to light, his or her lungs almost bursting 
till suddenly they break the surface again, holding in their hand the dripping, precious thing that he or she went down to recover. He and it are both colored now. They've come up into the light. Down below where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. In his descent and reascent, everyone, every one of us, will recognize this familiar pat- pattern, a thing written all over the world. Death and rebirth, go down to go up, is the key to life. And through this bottleneck, this belittlement, the high road nearly always lies. Down, down, down. Look to Christ. He's the great diver of our lives who went down for us. We are like the pearls of great price. And he went down for our relationships to redeem, restore, renew those. He went down for our world to offer us hope. And so I want to invite you as you go home today. Well, now, actually, let's do this now. Let's look to Christ. Look just to him and allow him to infuse us, to bring his character, his life, to express himself through us, okay? Let's take a moment to pause and pray, and then let's worship him.